so you know, the car is, this isn't according to plan that it was a car here. <laughs> Someone left their car here and we don't know who it is. So it's, it's part of the providential plan for today. Raffle. <laughs> All right, if you would turn with me to Isaiah 40. We're looking at verses 1 through 5 today. And uh, we need to begin with some context here. This is a, a really a brand new section of Isaiah that we're entering into. And so we need to spend a little time understanding where are we right now. And who is Isaiah writing to? And Isaiah is writing to the very same people he was writing to, to Judah. Except now he is writing to those who are going to come 150 years afterwards. He's writing 150 years ahead of time in, uh, in chapter 40. And so this is why some people do not believe that Isaiah is the author of this section. They will say, well, this must be a second Isaiah. A lot of uh, scholars, a lot of really smart people, and the reason they think that is because they don't believe in a supernatural God. <laughs> they don't believe that God is behind the book. But we, uh, little, maybe not scholars as they are, know much better, don't we? We know that this was written by Isaiah and that it's not hard for God to tell us the future. It's not difficult for God to tell us what's going to come ahead of time. And so what would be the situation that God's people are in at this time? Remember, Isaiah is writing to a people 150 years ahead of him. What would be their situation? And the answer is, they were exiles in a foreign land. He was writing to a people who were exiles in Babylon. And so the question is, what might it have been like to be in exile? What, was the, what would it like to have been in exile in, in, in Babylon, in a foreign land? And the answer is, this would have been the worst thing that's ever happened to God's people. They would have suffered horrific things. They were suffering under the covenantal curse. You know, God had told them that if they did not obey him, if they did not trust him, all these curses would come upon them. And now they were suffering the full weight of those curses. And perhaps the only worse thing than this would be the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So the exile began with the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And I want us to understand that Jeremiah was the prophet at the time. Jeremiah was someone who was around during the, during the siege and the, and, the, and the exile. He was a contemporary of the times. And he writes about these events. If you read the book of Lamentations and even Jeremiah, you will find that he tells us a little bit of what's going on. Unspeakable horrors would have happened. Mothers eating their own children unspeakable things. And after the siege, they would become exiles to a foreign people in Babylon. Imagine what it would be like for believers to be in a foreign pagan land who had no uh, idea of the true and living God. Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, I think we can, right? 
So why were they in this, con in this condition? We kind of already spoke about it. We already know why. But they were in this condition because they had rebelled against God. They had failed to trust God. They didn't honor God. God had graciously and miraculously delivered them. God had brought them to a land, paradise. This was the land that God had provided for them, had, had taken out all the inhabitants, and had planted them in this new land where God dwelt. It was truly a paradise. God promised to take care of them as long as they trusted in him and followed him. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah has been God warning them and calling them and, 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 and speaking to them, saying to them, trust in me. Look to me for salvation. Otherwise, you will fall and judgment will come. In chapters 39, verses 5 through 7, remember we did that a few weeks ago? Um, God said that he was going to bring judgment on Judah because of Hezekiah's failure to trust in God. And remember that that was just uh, a type of the continual failure that Judah had practiced before God. This wasn't like Hezekiah was the reason, ultimately. It was because this was the pattern of God's people. They kept failing to trust in him and kept rebelling against him. And so God kicked them out of the garden, didn't he? God kicked them out of their land and from his presence. And he gave them over to the barbaric and the wicked, the brutal Babylonians. Do you remember in Isaiah 6, verse 11 through 12, what God said to Isaiah about his ministry? Listen to what God told Isaiah he was to do. He says, he was to preach until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the Lord has sent everyone far away. So in a sense, he has fulfilled that ministry, hasn't he? He has already fulfilled, and as he writes, he's writing, a, he's doing, a, this is a new ministry. <laughs> this is a new ministry, and we'll look at what that new ministry is. So what might the exiles need to hear from God? If you were in exile, what would you need to hear from God? What would be important for you to hear? Do you, do you think you would need to mostly hear that you're a sinner? Do you think you would mostly need to hear warnings? Now, clearly, we all need warnings, right? We all need to be reminded we're sinners. But do you not think that they would have been confronted daily from the moment they got up to the moment they went to bed that they were under God's judgment, that they were sinners? I think they would have been so aware of the fact that they were sinners. I think they would have been broken. I think they would have been crushed under the weight of the judgment that they were under. Not only that, but they were in a foreign land. They didn't belong there. Do you think they might have wondered if God was still interested in saving them? Did God still care for us? Was God able to deliver us? Have we fallen so far that God would no longer deliver us? Do you think maybe they needed to hear comfort from God? Do you think maybe the message they needed to hear was that God had not forgotten them? That God cared for them? That God was going to deliver them? That God was still on the throne. And so what does this have to do with you and me? What does this have to do with us? Well, God does have a message of comfort to deliver. This chapters 40 through 66 is a message of comfort for the exiles. For those who realize they are sinners. For those who realize they are fallen. For those who need a mighty God to save them. Right? And the Bible says that we are exiles, that we are in a foreign land. Listen to uh, 
First, to Peter in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He calls us sojourners and exiles. Hebrews 11, verse 13. We are called strangers and exiles on the earth. Those are people of faith. We have been kicked out from the presence of God. Never since then we've been exiles in a foreign land. This isn't where we belong. The problem is that we can so easily forget that. Faith, on the other hand, faith, on the other hand, understands that this is not where we belong. We are not home yet. We are not comfortable where we're at. We long to be at home in the presence of God. And we, with confident expectation, look to him. And so that's what all of these chapters are all about, is comfort for God's people. God is bringing to such people a message of comfort, real comfort. Read this in verses 1 through 2. But notice that God does not just have a message of comfort, but comfort, comfort. It's emphatic message. It's a message. It's kind of like an exclamation mark. Not only does God have comfort for his people, but he has comfort, comfort. He has great comfort for his people. Isn't that good to hear? This comfort is magnified. Not only that, but there are multiple people that are supposed to go out and preach comfort. That's a plural word here. And not only that, but they're to continue to, see, to preach comfort. It's to be a continual message of comfort for God's people. And the message of comfort is spoken not just with words, but notice that it's also in emotion. The message is to be matched by a sense of urgency, a persuasion. And we see that in the words, speak tenderly. Speak comfort, comfort tenderly. And this is really important for us to understand. We are not just giving a bunch of words to you. A preacher or a proclaimer of God's word, no matter who you are, when you're proclaiming God's word, you are not just to give words out. You're not just supposed to say comfort, 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 right? You're to say comfort, comfort from God. You're to persuade. You are not giving the message accurately if it is not backed by the right emotions and persuasion. Just like Mike Coburn preached last week. Didn't he do such a great job? It was backed by passion. And it was backed by a true um, and accurate message. You can get the message wrong not only by preaching the wrong words, but also by not preaching with the right persuasion behind them. And so when we preach warning, right, we say, we say warning, danger, judgment, right? We preach with seriousness, with gravity. When we preach comfort, we say, comfort my people. We preach with joy and encouragement and persuasion to persuade, persuade your heart that there's comfort in God. That's faithfulness in preaching. So who is the comfort for? Just, just anybody? Is there any specific person that this comfort is for? Well, listen to the words here. It says, comfort, comfort, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. The my people here are believers. They're the, they're the, the, the people of God within the people of God. The remnant is ultimately who he's talking to. And so the question we ask, does this mean that you only preach comfort to believers? Does this mean we don't preach warning? Does this mean we don't instruct and guide and, 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 and rebuke? And the answer is, absolutely not. <laughs> That's not what this means. As the book, chapters 1 through 39, clearly showed us, warning and comfort are necessary to be proclaimed. So long as we live in the flesh, warning 
and comfort will be the pattern of a healthy diet. Preaching should include both, and believers need to be rebuked of their sin in light of a holy and righteous God. They need to be warned against sin in light of a holy and righteous God with the goal of correction and repentance. And those who hear the warning and repent, guess what? They should hear comfort, 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 because comfort belongs to them. Those who hear the warning and repent should be comforted. And this is the diet, the cycle that we need to continually be preached and hear from the pulpit. And you and I need to learn to receive both of them, don't we? You know, some of us can't stand anything unless it's harsh, unless it's, it's turn or burn. And I don't mean harshness is bad because it's not. There, there's a place for it. There's a place for strong preaching. But we think everything else is wishy-washy. And there are others of us who can't stand anything besides comfort. We can't stand anything that's not comforting and encouraging. We say, well, it's judgmental to preach anything else. But both need to be preached. God's people need to hear both warning and comfort. It is for your benefit, and it's healthy for us. I try to practice this with my children sometimes. You know, we are preaching the gospel, aren't we? We are living out the gospel and how we treat people. And uh, so every once in a while I need to warn. Every once in a while I need to discipline. You know, there comes time for that. But after there is a hearing of the warning, after there is a repentance to the discipline, then guess what? I need to bring comfort, comfort, comfort to my kids. It is past. It is gone. From now on, it is comfort and joy. I need to delight in them. And I need to enforce over and over and over again that I love you, that I care for you, that I have nothing against you. That is how we live out the gospel, and we should speak it as well, obviously. An example of this, and I won't go into it because we will want to keep going here, but would be when God's people came back from Babylon. And Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, and Ezra tells them, and they're all weeping because Ezra has just um, read the law to them. And Ezra says, now's not the time to weep. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You have wept. You have done that. But now it is time to rejoice. And there's a time to rejoice. There's a time for comfort. How important is it that believers are comforted? Does it really matter if we're comforted? And we might think, well, it's kind of selfish for me to pursue comfort. Should I really pursue comfort or not? Should I encourage each other, those around me, to be comforted? Well, let me tell you that we exist for the glory of God, don't we? And my question for you is, does the presence or absence of comfort in our lives say anything about the greatness of God? If our God is not able to bring comfort to us, then how powerful and how good is our God? What does it say about our God when we can't find comfort in hard times? Living in comfort is important because of what it says about God. What are you saying about God? And so the question is, what if I don't feel comfort? Is it dishonest to live as if I am comforted? To believe that I am comforted even if I don't feel it? And the answer is no, it's not dishonest. Because we are not driven by our feelings. We are driven by truth. And that's what faith does. And so even when we don't feel it, even when life around us has everything but comfort and we just don't feel in our hearts, we still believe God's word. And we find comfort in God's word, even when we don't feel it inside. The rest of this section is devoted to giving us grounds for comfort. This is where you find comfort. You know, have you ever had a meal off of cotton candy? How did that go for you? Right? <laughs> did it fill you up? Did it help you to be filled and nurtured? 
How about fluffernutter? I, I love fluffernutter, but it doesn't make a great meal in itself. You have to have peanut butter, right? Something real. But the reality is we need a foundation for comfort. We have no reason to be comforted today if we don't have a foundation for it. And much of the world lives feeling comfort for no reason. And so what are the grounds for comfort? We're going to be looking at this as we read the Bible. What are the grounds for real, true comfort today? And the first one we see here is the grounds for comfort, we could say, is the gospel in verses 3 through 5. The gospel means good news. That's what it means. And what makes something good news is that it fixes a problem in our lives, right? If I need a couple bucks and someone gives me a couple bucks, I say, good news. If I'm sick and all of a sudden the doctor says you're better, I say, that's good news, right? And the degree of the goodness is dependent on the greatness of the problem that's fixed, right? Some of you know about this. There was this Monopoly game at Shaw's, right? And uh, some of you get really excited when I mention it, but you would be embarrassed to tell us how excited you are. <laughs> but you buy something and you get this ticket thing and you can win something, right? And one of them was a $10 reward, right? And so I'm like, what? <laughs> $10, you know, I, I guess it's something, right? But now imagine if you had won a million dollars. What, there's a, a comparison, there's a, you can't even compare the two, right? $10 versus a million dollars, right? There's a great bount of difference there. <laughs> Mine has just, my, my notes have just failed me because my iPad has gone out. But that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do the best we can. But the, the point is, the point is that the degree of the good news, the degree of the greatness of the news um, gives us comfort, doesn't it? Gives us comfort. And there is no greater news than the gospel. And so the question is, what makes the gospel such great news? You see, every other news in this world is conditional. Every other news in this world is not that great. Even the greatest news in the world, imagine Lazarus, right? Lazarus was brought back from the dead. Is there any greater news than that? No, there isn't, is there, in this world, you might say. But Lazarus was going to die again, wasn't he? It was conditional. The good news was conditional. Anything you get in this world is conditional. There's no truly great news in this world you could ever get. The only truly good news is this. The only true good news is the forgiveness of sins. The only true good news is a right relationship with God. The only true good news is restoration with the living God. And guess what? That is exactly what it says here in this passage. It says there is pardon for sins. Our iniquity has been forgiven. This is good news. There is no other good news apart from this. No matter what you receive in this life, it is not good news in comparison to this. This is good news. It says your warfare has ended. And the warfare there does not have to do with fighting the Babylonians, nor even fighting, fighting the devil. It's not spiritual warfare. The word has to do with hard labor. And our sins have put this hard labor on our backs. Our sins have made us a really difficult, in duress. Our lives are in duress. We have a burden and we feel it, don't we? And because our sins are, are forgiven, the warfare has ended. We, we have a pardon from God. And then what does it say? You've received double for your iniquity. It doesn't mean that we're receiving two times the iniquity. The word there has to do with folding over. I mean, how could they ever pay back two times for their sins against a holy and righteous God? 60 or 70 years that they're in captivity is not enough for that. And so what does God say? 
What does God say? It's kind of like, it's kind of like someone doubling over like a napkin here. It's kind of like doubling it over, right? Uh, that's what the word means. And so God has said, you have paid sufficiently. And, and, and the purpose of the payment is not to pay back something, but to bring them to repentance and to bring them to humility. And so God is saying, it is sufficient. It is enough. It has, a, has a, accomplished everything it is sent out to do. And so praise God. Praise God for the good news of the gospel. There is no greater news in all the world than that our sins are being forgi- can be forgiven. And by the way, this doesn't go on to explain how this can happen right here. But we know that forgiveness of sins is through Jesus Christ, isn't it? We know that the work on the cross is the only means to have forgiveness of sins. The only comfort in this life is found in Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross. If you are looking for comfort anywhere else, there is none to be found. You can't find it. It's impossible. The only comfort is found in Jesus. Look to the cross for your comfort. He is the only one who can bring us comfort. And then it goes on to say that God is coming, doesn't it? God is coming, and there's this picture of a king who's coming. God is coming to us. And so we wonder, how in the world can we have this comfort? And the answer is, there is no way to have comfort apart from God bringing it to us. God must be the one who brings us comfort. He must be the one who delivers it to us. And there's this road coming. And if you were to come to God, how much you approach him? If God was coming to you, I should say, this isn't us going to God, it's God coming to us. And if God were coming to us, how would we get ready? How would we prepare ourselves? Well, John the Baptist is the voice here. And he's speaking of Jesus Christ. All four Gospels tell us that. There's a type of deliverance in the Babylonian captivity when they are brought back. But the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate deliverance that the type points to is Jesus Christ. And the New Testament makes it absolutely clear that this is the ultimate deliverance, is Jesus Christ. And every gospel points to the fact that John is the voice and Jesus is the one who's coming. And John's okay being a voice, right? We should be okay being a voice. We preach about the one who's coming. And he says, prepare the way. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means to repent. It means to turn. It means to look to him. You don't prepare for the, for the God to come by thinking of your own ideas of how to do it, right? You don't prepare by thinking, how can I get ready for God? How, how, do, how, do, how do I think I should get ready? What's my, my ideas for how God would be pleased in that sense? But no, we look at what does God require? What does it look like to prepare for the coming of the king? And it's repentance. And that's what John preached, a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And forgiveness and faith are opposite sides of the same coin. Preach forgiveness and repentance. And so John is the messenger who preaches that he is coming. And then it says here that he is going to come and nothing can stand in his way, right? Nothing can stand in his way. You might think, you might think, well, does my repentance um, determine whether he comes or not? The answer is no. (laughs) No, nothing can stand in his way of coming. Nothing's going to prohibit his purposes. It says he is going to level the, the, the mountains and bring up the valleys, right? He is going to lower the, the established religious people who think they have it all together, who think they don't need repentance. He's going to raise up the humble from the ash heaps, right? And he's going to bring them a salvation, a God who can save them and forgive their sins. He's going to bring hope to the hopeless. That's what he came to do. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And that way he's going to raise the valleys and lower the mountains. And we see that with the Pharisees, don't we? He spoke strong words to them, showing them that they were the apparent mountains that were being brought low by his preaching. They needed a mighty, mighty Savior. So God is coming. 
God is coming. And then it says, all will see the glory of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord is the manifestation of his greatness, the magnifying of his greatness, the seeing the fullness of his character, his, his love, joy, peace, patience, justice, every aspect of his character. And how do we see his character? How is his glory revealed to all mankind? The answer is Jesus. He is the exact representation of God himself, according to Hebrews 1, verse 1. He is God with us. God magnified. And how does he magnify? How do we see the glory of God the clearest? And what's interesting is it's not the transfiguration, is it? It's not in the transfiguration. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where we see the glory of God. And all flesh, Jew and Gentile, have seen it. They are seeing it. And they will see it. The glory of God has been manifested through Jesus Christ. And this is really what it's pointing to here. So praise God for his glory that's been manifested. Praise God for the great salvation. So what does this mean for us as we conclude? What does this mean for us? My question for you is, do you know comfort? Do you have this comfort? Do you know what real comfort is? Or are you living on a false comfort? Are you, are you living off the cotton candy of this world? Are you living off the fluffernutter of this world? The comfort that's not really comfort at all and is meaningless. The only comfort is found in the forgiveness of sins. And the only way to have our sins forgiven is through Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus Christ. And guess what? Believers live in continual repentance and faith. We continually live in the sustenance of Christ. It's not a one-time event. You don't know this comfort unless you see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So ask God to open your minds up to see the glory of Jesus Christ. We need to see it. And so my challenge for you is to ask God to open your minds to see his glory. My challenge for you is to ask God for comfort today. Ask God to open your minds up to see the comfort. We, if we are to glorify God, if we are to live in the glory of God, when I get up in the morning, the first thing uh, I think of is, man, what a lousy world we live in. <laughs> man, you know, things are, things are not right. The world is not right. We're in exile. But then the right place to be in is to say, but what great comfort I have today. My sins are forgiven. Uh, they're nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Therefore, what? It is well with my soul. And that is exactly where I need to be. I need to go through that cycle all the day and constantly feel the weight of the comfort of God. So I encourage you, encourage your fellow believers to find comfort in God. Strengthen them, encourage them to find comfort in God. Tell them there's no other comfort anywhere else and continually feed your soul and pray, God, help me to see the comfort that is mine in Jesus Christ. And if you are outside of the comfort of God, then today is the day of salvation. You have no reason to find comfort outside of Jesus Christ. Repent and turn in faith to Jesus and cry out to him to save you from your sins. Today is the day of salvation. And guess what? If that's true of you, you have every comfort in the universe that belongs to you in Jesus Christ. You don't need any more. You can't have any more. Our, our goal in life is to continue to understand the greatness of our comfort and to respond with joy and praise to God so that the whole world might see that our gospel is true and that our God is great. What an awesome deal, right? <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your gospel. 
Lord, thank you for the good news of forgiveness of sins. Lord, there is no comfort outside of that. Lord, I thank you that you have provided for us such a great salvation. I thank you, Lord, that you are glorious and mighty to save. Lord, there is no other hope, Lord. Every other hope is conditional. Every other hope is falling away. Every other hope is fading, Lord, is empty. But you're eternally, you're, you're the eternal encouragement, you're eternal hope. And Lord, uh, the great problem in our society is that we fail to see our sinfulness. The great problem is that we have found our home in this world. And so we cannot experience that comfort. We cannot experience the comfort that is from you if we are not aware that we are exiles and that we don't belong here and that we have sinned against a holy and a righteous God. So Lord, I pray that you would convict your people. I pray that we would be as those in Babylon who feel the weight of their sin, who turn to you from their sin and find great comfort and hope. And I pray that we would be a people who shine for you, Jesus that there is a God who saves and there is comfort to be found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.